Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle and thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. And also check us out on Apple, Google, Spotify, uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. And uh, you can click subscribe, rate and review, uh, share the episodes. Uh, we've had some really entertaining ones recently. And uh, the rest of this summer is going to be a lot of fun. That is the Sonic Cinema Podcast. Be sure to check it out. And you can also check me out at www.patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. Starting to get caught up on the rewards over there, as well as given a few exclusives, including, which is very appropriate for the discussion we're about to have today, uh, I will, will, I promise I will get my 10 favorite film scores of 2021 discussed uh, for patrons as well. But for now, you can also listen to some early uh, versions of cues for my score for the for Brian Ackley's film Player PhD. That's at patreon.com backslash sonic cinema. So the topic of today's uh, discussion is film scores and film composers, in particular one that has meant a lot to me almost as long as I've wanted to write music. And uh, he's a composer who is now a two-time Academy Award winner. His, his use of synthesizers as well as African and Asian musical ideas revolutionized film music in the late 80s and early 90s. And we are, of course, talking about Hans Zimmer. Joining me to talk about Hans Zimmer is a felt is a uh, past guest on the Sonic Cinema podcast. We discussed Orson Welles last year, and I joined him on the his podcast, Nostalgia Cast, to discuss Hal Needham's Rad. Uh, but uh, we're going to be discussing Hans Zimmer today, and I'm pleased to be joined by Darren Lundberg. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you again for having me. It's, uh, that Orson Welles conversation was, I keep telling you this, one of the most enriching experiences I've had is being able to talk about some, somebody that I love and something other than superhero movies. <laughs> oh, yeah, and, we, we, and the thing is, we could have gone through so many more. I mean, we, we yeah. went through three films of his, all of which were really great, but, I mean, we didn't even touch on some of his more famous films in that discussion that is and you know that's that's one of the things that is so striking about his career but um so i i mentioned that you are with uh you uh hosted nostalgia cast podcast where can people check that out well we've got a link tree uh, on you basically just find me on twitter at dw lundberg that's my handle there nostalgia cast you see a picture of kevin costner and Field of dreams is my avatar <laughs> uh but uh, you there's a link tree basically link that you can click on that has like you can listen to you know Podbean. you can listen to just our main website uh apple podcast stitcher um iHeartRadio. you can find us all in there again we just finished up our second season uh, Johnny, my partner, is uh, moving into a new home, and so they're getting settled. And so we just decided that was a natural place to take a break. So, but right now you can catch up on all. Our, I think we got we just logged our sixty first episode, which is the Swan Princess. Uh, we talked about that with uh, uh, Raspberry Raz, 
<laughs> on Twitter, uh, uh, Margaret Raspberry, Molly Raspberry. She was a great guest, and so we were able to chat about um, all that there. But yeah, you can go back and look at you know all the movies that we chatted about. Um, you know, movies from our childhood that we love. We talked about this last time when I was on with you, but obviously, you know, movies that you watch when you're a kid, and then you just you lose track with them, or say, you, and then you just happen to find them in a Walmart bin. So you just kind of happen upon the site of watching again. So it's, it's that kind of feel for a podcast if anybody who hasn't listened is trying to catch up on movies that might not be, you know, as, as good as we once thought they were, or they're better than we thought. It just depends on whether the nostalgia is uh, underwhelmed or overwhelmed by the quality of the movie themselves. So definitely check this out. Yeah, as a, uh, as a former guest, as well as a listener on the podcast, I, I definitely enjoy the conversations that you have with, your guests. I haven't had a chance to check out the Swan Princess one yet, but uh, yeah, it's 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 a lot of fun to talk about from though that perspective. And I mean, you know, obviously there are going to be a lot of movies that you're familiar with on uh, Nostalgia Cast, but there are also going to be ones that maybe you're not as familiar with. And I think that's where. But either way, you're going to get a really interesting conversation when you. Uh, when you listen to that podcast, so be sure to check check it out. And um, even talking about Rad with you of all movies, we're able to dive in yeah. <laughs> deep to a movie yeah. about BMX biking. <laughs> so that was a really fun conversation too. So oh great. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's look, it's it's not a great movie, but it's definitely an entertaining <laughs> one, and it's definitely one that has stuff to talk about. Whether you're talking about from a sports perspective, whether you're talking about from an 80s fad perspective whether you're talking whether even when you're talking whether you're talking about it from a soundtrack perspective because you know one of the funny things about that we didn't really touch on it too much we talked about some of the songs but like i i always get a kick out of watching that you know the hell track scene at the end of there and the music to that is just not as engaging or rah-rah exciting <laughs> that you expect for a big yeah. climactic race like that. <laughs> and it's it's really it's it's really fascinating to hear that. It's like, I mean it's you know it's a fine little piece of film music, but at the same time it's like, really, this is all you can come up with <laughs> for this big I mean we we talked about it on the podcast on the episode where it's like Hell Track is because so much of it is predetermined where you know crew's gonna win, it's yeah. it's hard to it's it was hard for them to get that suspense up. <laughs> but I uh, actually that 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 is actually kind of funny because there there's a there is a film from uh that was composed by today's composer Hans Zimmer that I think is actually a very good example of you know, hitting the predictability of that genre, but making it exciting, but making it interesting from a musical standpoint, that's Days of Thunder, which, I mean, is a film that really hits all the bases as far as the sports genre, but I think does it very successfully. And I I think Zimmer's score, which was his first for uh, Tony Scott, um, Mm -hmm. really, really does a great job of that. But um, so I know where my love of Hans Zimmer came from, and we'll get into that. What what was what was where did you first uh, really start to engage with Zimmer's music? 
Well, obviously we chose our, uh, you chose your top three Zimmer scores and I chose mine. So being a kid growing up, you know, an only child, my mom leaving me with movies, you know, you kind of get addicted to everything movie wise. And as far as movie music goes, I think the most familiar was, everybody's familiar with John Williams, right? You've got mm-hmm. the Star Wars theme, got the Jaws theme, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana, you know, all, all that stuff. You're addicted to it. But I don't, as far as that goes, I think I was just addicted to the themes. Like I could recognize the themes of those movies, not necessarily the music scores. Like obviously I've got a lot more appreciation for it now, but the first movie I ever actually remember sitting down and watching and paying attention to the music from the get-go was Backdraft. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Ron Howard movie from 1991. I remember, I think my mom dropped me off in the theater. She was that kind of person that she could drop me off just to see an R-rated movie when I was 13, <laughs> 14 years old. But I remember sitting there and that, that, that theme kicks in, that hero firefighter theme that just addicted me from the start. But then as I paid attention, you know, the movie is not the greatest, but the music tells a story. And I noticed that in the theater like they have the hero firefighter theme. They have like a, a softer, like piano theme for the brothers, the McCaffrey brothers in there. And that tells a story. And then, you know, they have the theme for the fire, like kind of a wistful kind of thing. And, and uh, I'll, I'll, Donald Sutherland's character, I think has a, like a motif that they play a bit. And then at the end, it, my favorite track of all time of any soundtrack is on their, on the, uh, so the, the release album. Uh, it's called show me your fire truck, which is mm-hmm. obviously a quote from the movie. But that's my favorite movie cue of all time because the way that it combines, and it's very subtle. I didn't notice it till later. Just It's one of those things that you you kind of get in your head and it's kind of, uh, it subconsciously affects you. But the way that Zimmer is able to combine the hero theme and the brother theme and kind of have one overlay the other and play as a, and he talks about that in the interviews that he's done since. But just the way that it told that musical story and had like the, you know, Brian McCaffrey continuing on the tradition of the, of the family, but also being the hero, you know, being a firefighter, that entails that. Just the way that the, the music told the story, and I don't know if Backdraft necessarily has themes as iconic as anything John Williams wrote, but I just thought that idea was fascinating as far as them able, individual music cues, you know, combining to tell this, this underlying story, and maybe it told it better than the screenplay uh, told it itself, but yeah, that was my first addiction, and from then on, uh, you know, that's when I started going back and you know, noticing all the new, you know, the old James Newton Howard, and James Horner, and I started getting addicted to all the music composers, and mm-hmm. noticing that. But yeah, Backdraft, I call that my, uh, that was my gateway into movie scores, just because that's when I first noticed and first fell in love with scores as scores and not as themes. That's, that's actually kind of interesting. And uh, well, we, we can certainly go ahead and dive more into uh, Backdraft. But um, to set a bit of a context with regards to Zimmer in general, um, he was an electric musician. He was an electronic musician in Germany with a bunch of uh, new wave bands, and he specialized in keyboards and uh, synthesizers. And then he lived in London, and he started doing uh, advertising jingles. And he, uh, that was where he first partnered with Stanley Myers, who would become a collaborator over the years. And he would start to work on films, uh, the 1982 film Moonlighting, uh, Insignificance from 1985, uh, My Beautiful Laundrette from 1985. His first solo score was Terminal Exposure. And he was the score producer on The Last Emperor, which 
won yeah. the Oscar for best score. And um, through this time, up until this point, uh, he was kind of a marginal figure on the uh, sides of film music, doing a lot of independent work, foreign films, stuff that most people would not necessarily be uh, familiar with. Then in 1988, he had a big turning point with his score for Rain Man. Which was which marked not only his first uh, Academy Award nomination, but really set an interesting template because of the way that utilizes synthesizers, the way it utilizes unusual instruments in different instrumentations and sort of African instruments that we weren't necessarily familiar with in seeing in mainstream Hollywood or listening to in mainstream Hollywood films. And he also did score for A World Apart that got a lot of notice. And uh, that was, you know, and that year, so that year was huge. He got nominated for Best uh, Original Score, even though he didn't win. And then the next year he got nominated, he was, he also wrote the music for Driving Miss Daisy. So he had back-to-back Best Picture uh winners that he was involved with and again it was one of those now that one is interesting i i'm not as familiar with it but just you listen to the theme of that and you can hear just a very different voice i think from what a lot of composers would do with that type of movie and um you know we we could you know i could certainly go on about like go point by point, lean up to Backdraft. But, you know, one of the other key films they did at this point was Black Rain by Ridley Scott. And that was where he started to incorporate the Asian ones because of the fact that it takes place in Japan. And um, it's funny because of the fact that I one of my favorite anecdotes about Zimmer is that he he talked about how Ron Howard wanted him to write the music for Backdraft. And Black Rain was a big reason for it because of the way he uses synthesizers, because of the way he wrote themes and motifs. And Hans Zimmer was like, I don't know that, are you sure you want me? Because that's a dark story. This is a story about firefighters. This is about heroism. (laughs) It's like, are you sure you want me for this score? And, uh, you know, like like you said, I you know, yeah, you can you can talk whether or not uh, Backdraft is a good movie. I I think it's a good movie. <laughs> I think it's an entertaining movie. You know, I it think, works. It's okay. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. And it's one of those movies that I do think point the way towards uh, Ron Howard being a more serious minded filmmaker. You know, without that, maybe you don't necessarily get Ransom or some other films that we might be talking about here later in the uh, episode. But um, I know when I went back and finally uh, saw Backdraft, I didn't see it in 1991, but when I did finally see it, I loved, and by this point, I was a nut for Hans Zimmer. I I was getting as many of his scores as possible, even for movies I'd never seen. Um, 
Backdraft did definitely stand out, and it's because of the way that he manages to do some really beautiful heroism, heroic themes in that movie, but also keep it very sinister because of the dark nature of the thriller aspects of that story. Yeah. And the synthesizers are such a huge part of what he does so well in that. Yeah, the again, you, you, I like how you talked about the with Rain Man. It's, it's kind of an original. The synthesizers, because you had like different like uh, obviously different like stages of film scoring, right? Like the old days, like the Eric Korngold uh, type scores. You know, they're very like big orchestra heavy. And then during the '60s, '70s, they kind of relied on woodwinds. I think '60s, '70s scores are kind of maybe not the strongest because they they kind of they date. Like you can tell where they come from a lot of the time. And then he had John Williams in the time of Woodwinds that came in and was like, no, I'm not going to do Jaws like that. I'm not going to do Star Wars like that. We're going to go big. We're going to go big orchestra. And then a lot of people started relying on that stuff. I think 80s, not necessarily scores, but uh, they really started relying on soundtracks, that kind of thing, like Rad or like Top Gun, those things to, to rely on uh, you know, musical accompaniment. And then with Zimmer having that electronic synthesizer sound, it is unique, but it, it works. I don't know, like, that's one of the things that I like, I love about him. And it doesn't necessarily translate when he does like live performances because it doesn't, the orchestral sound doesn't really ha- capture the magic of the, that synthesizer mm-hmm. sound, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, with, with Backdraft, it definitely has an orchestral type synthesizer electronic sound, but it has the horns, you know, it has that, the, the, the wistful, like the sad theme, uh, you know, when the, you know, you go, we go, and that line is spoken, they, they play the, the, the horn theme, stuff like that. So again, it's very standout, as like I said, it's just that, and I love that anecdote talking about, you know, how he, Howard wanted like the darkness and all that, but it's the firefighting sequences, which are the highlight of that movie, I think, because they're so visceral and so well shot, kind of stands out among the, the plot that's more like B-movie oriented. Mm-hmm. But that music score and the way that it captures, like you said, that, that hero, the heroism or the hero themes, again, that's something that attracted me to that score. It's something that makes it. I think Zimmer has like a, a track record of his scores being better than the movies <laughs> that, that accompany them. You know what I mean? Cause they, yeah. they, and one of my, one of my picks definitely does that, but you know, I don't know, like that, that synthesizer, it makes it very unique. It makes it very him. And he's, he's been able to incorporate more orchestral stuff and work both sides. Um, I like that the, uh, speaking of movies that don't stand out as far as the scores of that dark Phoenix score, which is great. It kind of reminded me of Pacific Heights. It kind of reminded me of that, 90s aesthetic aesthetic that you have. I really love that score. But yeah, that's, I don't know, I, I owe a lot of my, and from you, it sounds like you were addicted to Hans Zimmer and you came to Backdraft later after you were already addicted to him. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know if he had a lot to go on until Backdraft. He had obviously Rain Man, some, and Driving the Stage, which is a fun score, but it's mostly just the theme that he repeats over again. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and it works. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, I owe Backdraft a lot to my love of music scoring. And love of music composers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, you know, you you talked about the electronic aspect of Zimmer's uh, scores, and the fact that in the '80s, what we saw was this shift towards more song soundtracks, the combination of original music as well as songs to sell the movie. And but at the same time, you do see this evolution, which had really gone which had really started in the 50s with the starting uh, with them using Thitterman for a lot of science fiction movies. And 
The theremin is an electronic instrument. Um, and uh, so you, you started to see that used sparingly in the 50s, 60s, and then in the 70s, like you mentioned, with uh, John Williams. Although, I mean, I would say Jerry Goldsmith started oh, yeah. well with uh, Planet of the Apes. Um, and it goes back, I think, to 2001 using classical music. But the big orchestral sound. But in the 80s, what you also started with as the pop sound of popular music really started to codify around samplers and sound and keyboards and synthesizers, you started to, you do hear that creep into the movie, but it's not nearly as heavy in that. It's more, it's much more, it's much cheesier. And it was kind of, in a lot of ways, it was kind of a cheap way to yeah. do a big sound. I mean, there are some scores from that era that I love that do that. And, but something like Wendy Carlos's, uh, score for Tron, which is for her work earlier for Kubrick and Clockwork Orange, is such an outlier that until Zimmer came in and go and started to really push the boundaries of it into a more serious uh, level of film music that could rival a John Williams <coughs> or Jerry Goldsmith. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Jerry Goldsmith. Sorry, I kind of missed out on that. But, you know, I think like music scores too until back then. I think the thing that's great about Hans Zimmer is I, I can listen to his soundtracks just as soundtracks. Like I don't have to, like a lot of music stores, I think you, sometimes you need the movie to accompany him mm -hmm. or to watch with him. But Zimmer has a way and there's always something in his scores that just, it's very addictive and it's just very like this could, and a, like a poppy sound, like it stands apart. Like it can be, um, you know, you, you can listen to the soundtrack just as a musical piece instead of just having the, the, the movie there in front of you. Yeah. Um, I think John Williams, as great as he is, a lot of his music, it just, like the Mickey Mouse thing of everything, it needs to accompany that. And mm -hmm. the themes are what stand out, what you can listen to separately as concert pieces. But Zimmer, just as a soundscape, I think it's great that you can, and maybe it's not this way for anybody, but as far as all composers go, that's the one composer that I can listen to his scores separate from the movie. It's still, it feels like a complete, musical experience it sounds mm -hmm. like you know what i mean so oh no i i out oh, dude i i completely get that i mean i i've been basically in love with film music for about 30 years now and uh <laughs> it's you know and yeah it's one of those things where as, as and you're right as much as i love williams i don't find myself listening to his soundtracks as much separate from the film as now there are some i mean i will occasionally put on a star wars or even something like ai or um mm -hmm. some of his more uh convention some of his less conventional uh scores or i mean something like catch me if you can i think is an excellent score that you could listen to uh separate from yeah. the film and really get an appreciation for the film but yeah i mean it Something, even, you know, with something like Saving Private Ryan, I mean, that's another good example. I mean, at least Battle, uh, at least uh, Him for the Fallen, I think, is a good standalone <clears throat> piece. But, like, so much of that is tied to the images, you know? And maybe right. it is something to be said about Zimmer and some of the choices he's made over 
spheres that you don't necessarily get that same connection with some of those images. The thing about Backdraft is, like you said, the use of the horn when the you go, we go uh, line happens near the end. And show me your fire truck, which is a great view. Uh, no, it's 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 really terrific. And yeah, I I do like I said. I mean, I find my he he's kind of a go to as far as me listening to the scores. And I think that's one of the things that when I started again to his film music, his music, I I could pop in pretty much any soundtrack and <coughs> kind of get lost in it. And I mean, whether I've seen the movie or not, and there are still soundtracks of his that I haven't seen the movie, but um, I feel like it, it's the soundscape aspect. And I mean, that that's cert one of the things that's kind of interesting about my three choices is that they all kind of fit within that idea of being soundscape. Yeah. Some of them don't necessarily uh, rely on themes as much as the overall of the musical work. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, again, I don't mean to downplay John Williams because, again, it, it wasn't until Backed Up that I, like I said, noticed scores. You can listen to Empire Strikes Back has to be one of the greatest music scores of all time just because he added to the already iconic, you know, Star Wars theme and the Jedi theme and the Force theme and all that stuff with additional themes for Han and Leia, with, for, for Yoda, for the, even has a, for Darth Vader, obviously. And then for, even as a motif for the droids, like he has, Empire Strikes Back is, is incredible. We saw that with the Utah Symphony and just, I, I, those symphony, the, the players, man, like the concert guys, just take a bow, like all yeah. the players are, because they must have been sweating. And that, that's one of those scores that can definitely, you can listen to separately because it, it just, it creates like, you know, the soundscape we're talking about. And then with Private Ryan, the music score is interesting because yeah, Hymn to the Fallen is a great score. I mean, I mean, it's revered and I give it a moment of silence whenever it comes, you know, you pay your respects to it, but I don't think that there's music score that comes in until maybe they're at the, the the village at the end when they find Matt Damon's character, and then they're they're trying to rebuild and trying to set traps, and then the music comes in. And you're like, oh, oh yeah, like I don't know if I've heard this heard this score <laughs> before, because it's accompanying. It's, it's the images speak for themselves, so you don't need. I think one of the like we talked about Mickey Mousing or, or John Williams gets a little bit too saccharine sometimes. One of the criticisms of Hans Zimmer is that his music is noticeable. I think people don't, a lot of people don't necessarily like that, that they notice the music more than the movie themselves because it stands out. But I don't know. That's, that's one of the things that I like about him. Like you notice that music, especially with, uh, if you're comparing 80s, like we talked about Rad having no, like there's no like accompaniment to make that last little bit kind of exciting, the big rah-rah moment. It's kind of the same with the original Top Gun, like the Harold Baltimore score, which is again, iconic in its own right, but I don't think the score really does a perfect job of that last dogfight of making you feel like the impact of it. Yeah. But if you look at Top Gun Maverick, the way that Zimmer's contribution to that score, it builds the tension mm -hmm. so that when they're having the dogfighting at the end, you know, the, the, the baseline drive, the, like the emotional drive of that score, it really makes you feel the impact and the power of what they're going through, what they're up against. And that's, that's one thing that I love about movie music is it can help push you that extra level as opposed to like, if they did Private Ryan like nonstop sacraments where it would have been too much. Like yeah. the, the weakest yeah. parts of that movie are the, the, the bookends like in, in, the, in the present. Like it's too sacred, a little too sweet to really make it as good as the Schindler's List or, or up there. But everything in between is so strong and it's so dark and it's so powerful that you don't need 
the accompanying music for it. I think that's a that's an interesting point because sometimes music is just as impactful without it as you as with it. Um, and Zimmer, I think, um, you know, some of the scores that you chose um, are very accompanying, but very mood setting and very like ambiance like. And you need that as opposed to something that stands out like a rock star. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think part of that, and I, I, I wonder if so much of that with uh, Zimmer, because of the fact that he started to really get identified with action movies in the late 80s, early 90s, you have to have music that can go up against all of the sound effects that you're up against in an action yeah. movie. And right. I, you know, and I, I feel like that's part of it, but at the same time, you know, yeah, if if you are, if a movie, there are certainly times where a score's insistence is is noticeable to the point of being too insistent, yeah. and I think even Zimmer sometimes has that 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 happen to him. But I mean, it's not necessarily his fault. It's you know, it's the movie in general. But at the same time, I think when when you have somebody like Zimmer who is creating the music, and it's, you know, look at The Lion King, which was his first Oscar nomination. Like, there are moments in that that, to a certain extent, you would think, oh, wow, that's that's too much. But really, it isn't, because of the fact that the emotional impact of what his music is doing in that score is just... It goes. It takes the film to a completely different level. Yeah, yeah. There's the uh, I can't like it's called This Land on the the release soundtrack. Um, but the where he confronts uh, Mufasa's ghost in the clouds. That's yeah. a really powerful. And you know he he Zimmer lays that theme throughout. So you know the first time you see Simba as a, as a child, they play the, or before that when it's Rafiki, he's, he's painting the wall. You hear mm-hmm. that This Land theme or the father son theme. Um, but when it fully hits, when he's ch- chatting, you know, they're talking together, it's like, you must take your place in the circle of life. That, and the, the ghost disappears and Simba chases after it, like, don't leave me and all that stuff. It's so powerful the way that it builds. And that's, again, you're talking about that's too much. But for that moment of, of mythic quality, I think in Lion King, that's a definitely a standout, you know, among all the other, amongst all the other, like the Libowan contributions and all the African chanting and stuff that adds to the sonic soundscape of the, of the movie itself. That's definitely a, a mythic, powerful moment that works because of that music. And that's mm-hmm. something that, again, all great music scores do regardless of the composer. Zimmer's had his weaknesses, he's had his strengths, but when he hits, I think he hits really, really hard and really well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so a couple of years after he won an Oscar for The Lion King, uh, in 1995, he had uh, his score for Tony Scott's Crimson Tide, which Ooh, may yeah. consider one of his greatest and it's one that even that Steven Spielberg loves so much. He even said at one point, if it wasn't for his collaboration with John Williams, he would want to work with Hans yep. Zimmer. And it's not a coincidence that Hans Zimmer and his group at Media Ventures, which was the studio at the time that he did, that was really a collective of composers. It was basically a mu- music studio solely for film and TV music. And it was a collective of composers, plenty of names that people are familiar with, Mark Mancina, Trevor Rabin, 
John Powell, Harry Gregson Williams, uh, Nikki, Nick Lenny Smith, uh, Rupert Gregson Williams. Um, you know, Jay Rifkin was a collaborator in that process. He was one of the producers of that. Um, Crimson Tide is a tremendous score, uh, but it was one that came out in 1996 that was the one that really made me stand up and listen, take note and listen, sort of in the same way Backdraft was for you, and that was uh, that was Zimmer's score for uh, John Woo's Broken Era. Yeah. And uh, this was, you know, by this point, I knew that I wanted to try film write music for film and I had listened to I've written about before I you know James Horner's score for Braveheart was one that you know I ever since I had really started to get into film music you know the more I listened the more I'm like oh this is great this is great and that was kind of a one-two punch of the crow and Braveheart that made me like man what if what if I could do something like that I mean, I was, I you know, I was, I was in band in uh, high school and trombonist, and um, you know, but uh, when I, you know, and Broken Arrow was in my senior year, and by this point, I basically had already decided that I kind of wanted to continue pursuing music, and uh, the thing that I love about Broken Arrow, and the thing, well, first of all, one of the things that completely blew me away about Broken Arrow was when I got the soundtrack after we watched the movie for the first time, you look at the musician credits. There were eight credited musicians on Broken Arrow, and I'm like, how on earth can only eight people create that depth of, that depth of music? And it was my first time of really paying attention to electronic music. And... The synthesizer use, and the thing that I love about Broken Arrow, the thing that I still continue to go back to as far as Broken Arrow is the fact that, yes, it's very much a lot of the same things that he did in Backdraft. It's a lot of the same things he did in Crimson Tide. But there's an aspect to the score for Broken Arrow that I think is uh, really makes it stand out, much like the horns do in Backdraft, and that is the use of the guitar by Dwayne Eddy, who yep. famously did the Peter Gunn theme, and Hans Zimmer got him to perform the guitar in Broken Arrow. I, I love that that guitar theme in this movie really signifies a level brotherhood between Travolta and Christian Slater's character, and something that, you know, we we both love John Wu. And uh, yeah. so we know from, like, The Killer, from Hard Boiled, you know, the people on two sides of different coin, the friendship, brotherhood, that type of thing is loyalty is important to him. And I, even though Broken Arrow is not even, I wouldn't even say it's in his top three as far as his American films, yeah. I... It's still an entertaining movie, and a big part of that is the way he uses that he he uses the brother the theme by Dwayne Eddy to really hammer home the brotherhood between uh, Travolta and Slater's characters as they first uh, 
separates because Travolta's character is the villain, and then you <clears> see you hear that throughout the film, and uh, you know it's it's just in the use of Western ideas. Uh, one of the scores that he's cited um, as being a big inspiration for him was the late great Ennio Morricone, and mm-hmm. in particular, Once Upon a Time in the West, as well as the Mission. And um, you can, I think you can really tell the influence on uh, Broken Arrow in stuff like the Mission and One Spawn Time in the West. Yeah, you um, <laughs> Broken Arrow like like backdraft. Broken Arrow is not the you know John Wu came over from Hong Kong. I think Hard Target like John Claude Van Damme brought him over and tried to make an impact. Hard Target has Hard Target's not a smart movie. Broken Arrow is not a smart movie. Like you could talk about the killer. And um, Bullet to the Head and Hard Boiled is being, being really smart, really supple, like action movies that aren't just about the action. I think Broken Arrow came along, and it, it's when I say dumb, I don't mean to say that it's, it's you know it makes the movie like terrible or anything. It's just it's not as smart, you know. It's dumb compared to the other like smarter movies that he's made. Yeah. But I think audiences weren't necessarily maybe ready for that, ready for the full woo. You know what I mean? As far as like, I think Broken Arrow kind of opened the door for Face Off, which is a very very in some ways, I think Face Off might be my favorite John Woo movie just because mm-hmm. the way it's able to mix the American and the Hong Kong aesthetic. And the way that, you know, you talk about the brothers the brothers aspect of Broken Arrow, it's there, but I think the music does a lot more work for it than the screenplay does. Yeah. Uh, as, as opposed to Face Off, which it's very strong, that dichotomy between the hero and the villain, the killer, or the hard-boiled, that, that brother kind of aspect is very strong in those movies. It's, it's not quite as strong in Broken Arrow, but... I like to call Broken Arrow exploding helicopter the, the movie because if there's a helicopter in it, it's going to explode. <laughs> it's that kind of dumbness. But, you know, it has that, those, the, the Dwayne Eddy theme, I think Hale, the Christmas lady, he has a, a great hero theme, you know, the part where he's being heroic mm-hmm. and all that. So again, it's a very noticeable score. I, I don't know, do you think, and there's another aspect of it, I think, um, but I want to come back to it as far as Zimmer incorporating maybe other composers' scores in his scores. But as far as Broken Arrow goes, Brian, let me ask you, do you think that it's such a good score because it stands out against, again, the, the dumbness of the movie itself? Do you think that's why the, the score works so well, because it's so much better than the movie itself? I think that's part of it. Uh, I think also, even though, you know, even though it's very much in the same vein of action scores like Crimson Tide and Backdraft, if you really listen carefully, you can tell the nuances in the types of synthesized sounds that Zimmer uses. And, I mean, you know, Crimson Tide definitely evokes being underwater for me. The score for Crimson Tide really evokes being underwater, being in a claustrophobic setting. Backdraft definitely feels like firefighters fighting a fire. Broken Arrow, because of the fact that so much of it takes place in the desert, I think there are moments where the the synthesizers go up and down. There's this there's this constant movement in volume and rhythm that I think is really interesting. And I think it's part of the reason why it really stood out to me even more than Crimson Tide, which I had seen by this point. But um it was it was that like there, there are times where Wu pans across the, the landscape, and you, 
as you hear Zimmer's music, like you feel like you feel like you're painting a even if you're just listening to the music, you feel like you're that you feel like the the musical landscape is moving with the camera. Mm. And you know, whether it's using reverb, whether it's using uh crossfades and different types of musical uh and audio techniques like that, I think is really interesting. And uh, um, again, you go to the theme, the the idea, and by this point, I really had not gotten into Ennio uh, Morricone's The Gay Wife. That was still a couple of years off for me. But um, you definitely, I, I think it's one of those things that's just that type of sound just really engaged me because of the fact that it's like, Oh, so it's not just, and I think part of it is it's not just the music that's creating this impact on me. It's the way the the music is created, the way the music is recorded, the way the music is mixed is such a big part of it. And it's one of the things that when I got into electronic music in college, that's one of the things that really is kind of interesting is what can you do on a technical level to make your piece more interesting? And I, I think that's, that's something where you don't really have that luxury writing for an orchestra because, you know, orca the orchestra instruments have, have limitations. The musicians have limitations. Now, Grant, yes, you can change things up in post uh, during the mixing process, but you don't want to go too far with it where it feels unnatural or it sounds unnatural. With synthesizers, you definitely have that luxury of creating something otherworldly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I love that perspective. Again, I can, I'm not a composer like you, so I... I just I can listen to a music score and appreciate like the sound as far as it affects my ears. But as, as far as you talking about how the music works, that's something that I find fascinating as, as a like a different perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, you know, especially in here, I mean, the way that he uses drum machines for the rhythms, the way that the rhythms aren't they they sometimes build to his crescendo along with the rest of the music. The fact that it's very much. You know, it's it's one of those cases where you have a synthesized like with Backdraft, you can kind of tell that there's a level of orchestral feel that he's trying to do with that. <laughs> one of the things that is so has always been so entertaining for me with Broken Arrow is that he kind of drops that idea of oh, this is going to be a you know, and Crimson Tide is kind of the same way. There's some orchestral aspect to that that he is bringing to that to turn it to life. Broken Arrow is almost purely feels almost purely electronic. I mean, yeah, there there's guitars, there's horns that play throughout it, but at the same time, the biggest the biggest changes in the overall soundscape come from synthesizers. They don't come from mimicking orchestral sound. And I think that's one of the things that's so interesting about it. 
Yeah, I think when you're talking about the orchestral sound the electronic, like Backtrack has like a choir that comes in and that makes it feel more symphonic or orchestral than electric. Um, electronic Crimson Tide has that too. It has the the, the men's choir that, that mm-hmm. sings along with that makes it feel apart from playing on a synthesizer or a keyboard or something like that. I think the Dwayne Eddy guitar kind of has that same effect. It, it it's not yeah the rest of the music score is electronic, but the Dwayne Eddy guitar kind of gives that human quality to it, mm-hmm. which kind of maybe works ironically because the Deacon's character, the Travolta character, is not again he's the villain. He's kind of over the top comic booky type of villain and so it lends him kind of a humanity that's not really there in the performance or the script yeah uh, but that definitely works but uh, the other thing i wanted and i don't know like if you know this but like so the the regular release of the broken arrow soundtrack was just released it was great like seven tracks or something like that and then la la land released a uh, a complete score and it's interesting because they credit at the bottom they say includes samples from fire in a brooklyn theater by randy adelman which isn't on the original. So I'm not sure if you knew the story. I think, and the, the theme they were talking about from Adelman, it comes from a movie called uh, Come See the Paradise. I think it was a Pearl Harbor movie. But it has, and it's played in a lot of trailers. It play, it's played in oh, the yeah. two good men trailers. I'm, I'm familiar with that. Movie. Yeah, I'm familiar yeah, so with that. Yeah, so the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
part of the reason why some some scores of his you see like two to three names on it because of the fact that it's like you know they they kind of had to do that but um at a certain point but at the at the same time i mean you know i i do love and i mean i think especially with the type of music that zimmer does it's it's sometimes easier to make that type of those type of influences a little bit hidden and those type of samplings a little bit hitting. But I mean, you know, it really with that's that's one of the that's one of the things that we also see in the uh 80s and 90s that we start to see the idea of sampling. And I mean, it's more and more per, per, it's more prominent in popular music and genre like rap and hip hop and pop music. But at the same time, it's not unexpected that you would feel that something like that would happen in uh, film music either, especially when you're talking about electronic scores. Yeah, I don't, I, I bring that up not to say that Zimmer like plagiarized that score, because obviously you have so many music scores and you're influenced by so many things. I think if you're talking even director, Spielberg or Scorsese or De Palma or Lucas, they're influenced by so many movies that they incorporate images that are in their brains into their movies, even yeah. though they're copied almost exactly from other movies. That's not plagiarism. It's just they're being informed by, you know, other movies. And so mm -hmm. I, I don't bring the Randy Adelman thing up in Broken Arrow to say, oh, look at Zimmer plagiarizing. It's, I just think it's interesting that maybe he didn't, you know, and there's the trailer. It's been, it was famous by then, obviously. In the oh, trailers, God, yeah. The, the <laughs> but I don't know if Zimmer necessarily heard that and thought, oh, look, let me incorporate that into the music score. I'm not going to credit it at all. I just think that it kind of it was so similar that they're like, hey, if you're going to do that theme, I think we need to come back and we need yeah. to have at least some kind of credit on yeah. it. So again, that's it's not a detriment to that score at all. I just thought it was an interesting seeing that as a credit. Oh no, that Lala record. oh no, and there's actually there's actually another uh, one of our one of the film scores we're going to be talking about where you know it it's it's actually kind of interesting the way. Uh, I the way my ear hears something, but we'll we'll get to it at that point. So um, you know, also in uh, also this year he scored, he collaborated on the Rock, he collaborated on the whole wide world, and he also got his third Oscar nomination for the Preacher's Wife in the uh, original musical or comedy score, and uh, which he would actually be nominated for three times in the existence of that category. Uh, the next year, he would be uh, he, he would be nominated for, for As Good As It Gets, um, but he also had another film that came out, and it's, it, it's also one of your uh, soundtracks, and it is for Mimi Letters, uh, The Peacemaker. Yeah, that's... Uh... One of the reasons I chose The Peacemaker over Crimson Tide is obviously one of my favorite scores. Like you said, it's one that brought to Spielberg's attention. I think it's helped Zemmer become like head of like the music production at DreamWorks that kind of get, got him that position. And The Peacemaker incorporates bits of Crimson Tide. I think the main theme sounds like Crimson Tide incorporates bits of The Rock and incorporates bits of, you talk about Dwayne Eddy doing guitar. I think he had Pete Haycock uh, performing the guitar on Thelma Louise and K2 and Drop Zone. So the Peacemaker kind of incorporates that sound. Again, he, Zimmer had a very noticeable or very recognizable um, uh, aesthetic or sound for his action movies during mm -hmm. the 90s. I just think the Peacemaker, I wanted to talk about that because it has, again, one of my favorite action cues of all time. Um, but it, 
nobody's heard of the Peacemaker. It was DreamWorks. <laughs> like, I think it was their first. Was it their first? Movie it was their first releases? live action. Yeah. Okay. First, along with, and then Mouse Hunt came soon after and Prince of, you know, they had that, that uh, big string of releases, but Peacemaker, again, talking about movies, it's not, it's not great. Like it doesn't rewrite any rules. It's, it's a very solid, like techno, um, like military thriller. It works as an action movie. I think it works just fine. Mimi, you know, her Mimi letters direction. She had it, one thing that's important in action is, is uh, the geography. Like you're able to tell what's going on. And she does a very good job of that. Again, there's nothing bombastic about the movie. She's very straightforward. But the centerpiece sequence of that movie, it's the chase where the DeVoe character, the cleaning character is chasing after the one of the nuclear bombs or they think it's all the nuclear bombs that have been stolen. And they're chasing that convoy. The music that plays, uh, and a bit of a side note here, Zimmer, the thing that's annoying but also great about him is when he releases his soundtrack, he does this thing where he doesn't release cues in there in complete form. He like combines like yeah. three or four different, and John Williams does that too to an extent, but on the, and that's why it's, it's great trying to find the bootleg scores or the complete scores for Zimmer, mm-hmm. because you can get like, and figure out the pieces of what, you know, he meant to do as opposed to how it combines on the actual the soundtrack. The actual soundtrack release for the Peacemaker, my favorite cue is combined, I think, there's only five or six tracks on it, but it's called Chase, and it's the first half of a 17-minute cue on the soundtrack. But, you know, the way, and if you take it separately, I think in the bootleg of the, I think Walla Land released a, a version of it too, but it's called Chase is the name of the cue in that. But the way that it, and again, you talk about how Zimmer has to have a score that rises above the noise and the, like the sound effects. I think some of the score does get drowned out by that because it is an action movie. But when you listen to Chase as a separate cue, talking about movies that you can listen to just in your ears as opposed to having the, it, it works as a beautiful piece of action score because it, it builds like from a, you know, a very quiet place to a big bombastic place. It's obviously yeah. where you want to go with action movies. But it has like, you know, you talk about the rule of threes, having themes or, or dialogue or, or bits of movies that come back three times, once to show, oh, it's important, twice to show, oh, when, I guess once to introduce it, twice to show that it's important, and the third time to hammer it home. I guess the easiest part would, way to describe that would be from, uh, I don't know, the first Transformers movie, where it's like, um, what is that line that they say? It's like, no no sacrifice, no victory. Yeah. You know, they say it three times, and the third time Sam Witwicky says it, it's, oh, that's important. It's a theme that's there. And in Chase, what I love about it, it has two times the rule of threes happens. It has a hero theme that plays, that plays three times, that plays one to be introduced when DeVoe launched, when they get the okay to go after the, the convoy. It comes later when they're, they survive a, a missile attack, kind of plays a little bit. And then it has the full bombastic um, theme at the end when they finally succeed. But then it has another theme that I call the, the action theme, where again, it plays a little bit in the middle and then it comes back kind of a little bit full and then it, it kind of lays back and relaxes. And then again, before it builds to that final hero theme, it builds a full bombastic. It's the da 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 You know, it's that theme. And it plays three times in it. It doesn't blow its whole wad at the beginning. It plays a little bit, and then it plays a little bit more. And then at the end, it plays like the full on action theme, and it's building to its climax. As a piece of action scoring, I don't think you appreciate it when you're watching the movie itself, because you're kind of caught up in the images, but separate. That's what I'm talking about. It's like, as a piece of music, as a cue, it works as, you know, it builds to something. It has motifs that come back. It's very well structured. If you can find that on YouTube, it's just called Chase. And again, it kind of doesn't really butcher it on the actual soundtrack release, but it kind of takes out a lot of the other bits and pieces that I like. But like I said, as a piece of action school, I think it's just a beautiful piece of work and it's a standout 
um, when my in-laws watched the Peacemaker for the first time, my, my wife made a point to, to tell them, oh, this is the piece that Darren really likes a lot. So pay attention <laughs> to the music when you watch them. Like I talk about it so much and it means so much to me as an action piece of the music that, I don't know, just stand up, but you don't, like I said, you don't necessarily notice it before watching it. So. Yeah. I, I mean, I haven't seen the, uh, I haven't seen the Peacemaker since theatrical. And I don't know, for some reason, I, for some reason I did not pick up this uh, soundtrack at the time. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I searched it out when you uh, said that this was going to be one of your choices. And yeah, I, I agree completely about the way that it rises and falls in the way a great action score does. I mean, yeah, I mean, there, there are moments where it's, you know, derivative of like Crimson Tide, Broken Arrow. Yeah. It, it's very much of that era of Hans Zimmer music which I actually, I'll admit, I actually kind of love. I love his music for uh, Drop Zone and stuff like that. Mm. I mean, I, I think it's entertaining. Um, a propulsive effect. It's a very propulsive yeah. kind of sound. Yeah. Oh, that is, that is absolutely the best way of putting it. And uh, yeah, there, there are some really entertaining cues on there. And yeah, it, it's, it's, it's fascinating to hear the, uh, to listen to the soundtrack. Because, I mean, Crimson Tide only has like five cues. Five, five tracks on like yeah. there are two tracks that are very small and then <laughs> like there's one track that's like 25 minutes long yeah. the k2 yeah. soundtrack always cracks me up because it's just like there's two, two tracks, tracks. <laughs> right. and, and um right. you know it's it's one of those things where it's like i i love the way that uh to a certain there there it's one of those things where i really kind of love the way that uh you know Making a soundtrack album is almost as creative in a way as creating the score itself. And yeah. I mean, one of the things I love about with Broken Arrow is that everything, like all of the pieces, really sort of like bleed. You know, there there's not like natural uh, on the original soundtrack recording. At least there's not original. There's not typical. Uh, breaks in the music yeah. like it keeps going and it makes it very easy to just listen to it one after another after another and keep that music going um yeah i the peacemaker is the same way and it no it's i definitely see what i uh, i definitely hear what you uh appreciate about that 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 cue and the propulsiveness is something that i've always been a big fan of when uh zimmer does action i mean i you know it's funny because of the fact that we we've had you know we've had discussions off the podcast and i uh, you know he he did the uh dark knight trilogy with uh james newton howard and uh although is he he was the only composer listed on the dark knight rises and it's funny because of the fact that you and i kind of have very different feelings on that one because I actually, one of the things I really like about that one is that I like that it sort of hints back at this earlier aspect of Zimmer. Because, I mean, it's not as, it doesn't feel as influenced as by, like, Gladiator and that type of thing that he would do later, but it does kind of feel like, you know... I, it does kind of feel like in the vein of something like a Crimson Tide or Broken Arrow or Peacemaker in the way it uses the synthesizer. Yeah. 
the Dark Knight Rises score we did, I, I have a hard time with that one because I love, I love the Dark Knight Rises. Like that whole trilogy, like works for me as, as a Batman story, like an emotional journey. So when I bring up Dark Knight Rises, always like with a, a little hesitation because I know a lot of people don't like it. So it's always me bringing up going, Dark Knight Rises, I like it a lot. You know, just kind of like re- yeah. preparing to be hurt. You know, like yeah. people are, what are you talking about? It's a terrible movie and it sucks. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So I, I kind of back up, but I, I do love that score. I think it's just, as far as an original piece of music, I don't, it's not my, it's not my favorite because I think they go into send, uh, ascending, Batman Begins is my favorite for those, then The Dark Knight, and then The Dark Knight Rises. Just because, you know, Dark Knight Rises is obviously going to incorporate scores that have been done before. And Batman Begins set that soundscape that kind of pays off in the rest of the trilogy. But I think he, like, he treated, like, I think the, the interview, like, he said he was going to treat the orchestra that was playing, like, a drum circle who's going to beat them silly, is going to make them, like, wear them out. <laughs> it does have that feel, again, because yeah. Dark Knight Rises is a disaster. It's the aesthetic mm-hmm. of it. So they're able to it's so oppressive. So I think that works for that movie. But I do like that what you said. It does harken back to that electronic sound. I don't mean to downgrade The Dark Knight Rises or its score. It's right, just that right. it means so, it's one of those things that means so much to me that it kind of hurts a little bit, even though I know everybody has their own opinion. It hurts a little bit when somebody doesn't like it because I like it so much. It's that kind of thing. But I don't mean to denigrate that score. Well, that's a very strong score. Yeah. Um, and it, again, it's very noticeable. The Bane theme is very noticeable. I like the cat little, I think it mm. works. Uh, like it has that metronomic um, uh, soundscape, what the metronomic rhythm that he's famous for. Yeah. The, the Catwoman theme does have that. So again, very good score on that front. It's just mm-hmm. not not the one that that made me fall in love with those the Batman scores. I guess you yeah. Could say. No, and I, I I think that's certainly fair. I mean, I I think I prefer I think I prefer Dark Knight just because of the use of the Joker theme. Uh, the way that he uses his like jaws, like yeah. that's the great it's, thing. It's but, like fantastic. when you hear it, yeah, it's yeah. awesome. Um, and uh, and yeah, I, I've I've always been a big fan of uh, Batman Begins too. I I love that score. Uh, you know, and uh, but going back to Peacemaker for a little bit, yeah, I mean this this is this is one that I would definitely say is a bit of a gem. I uh, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah, you're gonna hear a little bit of uh, similarities with. Uh, some of his other scores and uh but at the same time i mean i i think the way that he the way that he builds to it it makes me want listening to the score makes me want to rewatch the movie which i haven't seen in so long um but i mean you can you can feel it it's one of those things where like you were like like we both said it's like you can listen to this this soundtrack and feel like you're getting a full experience. And yeah. you don't necessarily feel like you need the movie with it. And I, I think that's one of the things that's really, uh, it's one of the things that's really kind of terrific about this, uh, this score for The Peacemaker. I know um, I use uh, YouTube uh, music. I know it's available there. I'm sure it's available on YouTube and elsewhere. Uh, if if you're a fan of Zimmer, if you haven't listened to it in a while, definitely check it out. I think it's yeah. a really pretty interesting one. Um, but even if it like copies like the if it's if it's derivative of it, I think there's an aspect of it where a director will sit down, kind of like Ridley Scott with Black Rain, where they're like, <laughs> "I want this sound. Like I I yeah. I'm want, I love this movie. I love Drop Zone. Let's say Mimi later was saying to Zimmer. I don't know if they did, but I want this sound for this movie. And so they are purposely derivative because that's what the director wants. And if you see Zimmer's name on an action score, I think that's kind of what you want too. But 
yeah, that's, I like that you call it a gem. It's something that hasn't been heard before. There's a lot of just beautiful, beautifully structured pieces in that score that don't get uh, the appreciation they deserve. Yeah. Uh, In 1998, he had a couple pretty big big scores. Uh, One was another Oscar-nominated one for uh, The Prince of Egypt, also in the Mm. original musical or comedy score, which, you know, it's funny, both, I, I mentioned earlier that like I got into the habit of uh, purchasing soundtracks from Zimmer for movies I hadn't even seen before. I do vividly remember buying the soundtrack for both of these films, actually, uh, before the movies came out. And the first one is yeah. Prince of Egypt, which got nominated in original musical or comedy. And the second one is my next choice for Terrence Malick's The Thin Red Line, which was <laughs> nominated in the dramatic score category. And uh, pro- probably should have won. I, I'm, I'm <laughs> still. I, I, I think you know it's funny because of the fact that like let let's go off on a little bit of a tangent here. So <laughs> after the Lion King, uh, the Academy split up the original sca- score category for a few years into yeah. dramatic score and a ri- musical or comedy score. Uh, they did that for a few years because Disney was basically hoarding all the musical Oscars for score because <laughs> right. it won for Little Mermaid, one for Beauty and the Beast, one for Aladdin, and one for The Lion King. I was thinking about it um, in preparation for this episode, and it's interesting that in those, in the eight years, in the eight categories that the score category was split up, Miramax ended up winning five Oscars. So we had another sort of uh mm-hmm. we we had another sort of dominance. And the first year <sighs> we split up, uh Pocahontas won music for comedy, so they couldn't get away from Disney just yet. And then <laughs> in dramatic score, we had Il Postino winning over Apollo 13 and Braveheart, among other scores. Uh Complete travesty. I mean, I understand, <laughs> and I'm so there are a lot of reasons that you pissed at the wine scenes in uh, Miramax. <laughs> this is one of the worst. Like this four year run of scores. So 1996, Miramax won for both Emma, which is a lovely score. I'm fine with it, Wing. And then the English Patient, which of course it was going to win. And so lovely. And it's a good score as well. Um, 97. Uh, well, that was the year of Titanic, so of course James Horner won. And then the full Monty won Best Comedy Musical Score, which is still a bit of an anomaly. Um, <laughs> because it, the the score was not what people were coming out of that mm-hmm. movie appreciating. Um, is that then, the only award that the full Monty won? Is that why they gave yeah, it the, that? Yeah, I, I think that's what it was. And uh-huh. I think to a certain extent, the... Uh, and to a certain extent in that era, I think the score was original score was kind of an easy win to give like movies that were not made for best picture and stuff like that that weren't really gonna win anywhere else. But yet in nineteen ninety-eight, so the year that Zimmer was nominated for both Prince of Egypt and Thin Red Line, uh musical or comedy was Shakespeare in Love, which I, as much as I love Prince of Egypt, as much yeah. shit as Shakespeare in Love gets, 
Steven Warbeck does <laughs> a beautiful score in that movie. I talked about when yeah. I talked about the movie on Binge Movie. And it was it's a wonderful score. Yeah, I love it. I will never in a million years understand how the Thin Red Line and Saving Private Ryan lost the Oscar to Life is Beautiful. And I love Life is Beautiful more than other people's, but I will never in a million years understand why that won the Oscar for score. Yeah, the Oscars are, they, you don't want to get me going on that. They're just a weird, with, with Disney winning, it's just kind of, oh, let's just give it to them. I don't know, like when I listen to Aladdin um, and you know, compared to like The Lion King, Beauty and the Beast is great. Little Mermaid is great, obviously, because that made a huge dent. But as far as Aladdin, it's 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 fine. But I don't know if it's as strong as, say, The Lion King. I think, yeah. you know, they did settle. And then with Miramax winning, it's all about the money that he spent. It's all about the promotion. Oh, yeah. like the, the, the Weinsteins were just fantastic at that, to the point where, talking about The Dark Knight, like, they pushed for the reader to be nominated over The Dark Knight, which is, the reader is not a good movie. You know, I, no. I, I don't think it really worked. But, you know, and there's obviously an upward for there. But Oscars are very... I didn't even know who won this score. I didn't even know that Zimmer was nominated for <laughs> Prince of Egypt and Thin Red Line, which were deserved. But as far as life is beautiful, um, I probably like it a lot, that movie a lot less than most people like it. So we're kind of on an opposite perspectives there. But again, that's a Miramax thing. It's about buying it. And it's oh, interesting yeah. with Full Monty winning because again, let's give it to something because people like Full Monty. Let's just give it a best musical score. Mm-hmm. Not kind of thing. It's just, it's interesting. Um, you talked about Thin Red Line. That's, the, the main one that I mentioned before, being very ambiance. It's, and as the opposite of Saving Private Ryan, which I think the images sell the movie more than the score does. You don't need the score to really do it. And the score seems, I would have been fine if they didn't introduce the score until the very end, like have no score and then have him to the fall and play over the credits. Yeah, That might've been interesting. But Thin Red Line, because it's such a poetic kind of look at the way war affects people and affects nature. That's the whole point of that movie. And if you're looking at our list of six movies, I think Thin Red Line is probably the, the greatest movie in, in either of our lists. That's actually a great, mm-hmm. great movie. I don't know if I necessarily like it as much as Private Ryan because it's more, you know, Thin Red Line, you could look at it and think of it as like too pompous or too self-important because, again, the voiceovers and the way the music is. I think it works because of what Malik's going for. But as far as a soundscape, um, I think that's a beautiful score for the mm-hmm. mood that it I don't know if you can, apart from Journey to the Lion, which is the, the famous one, that, that is, again, yeah. has been featured in many trailers. I don't know if you could take a lot of that and listen to it as kind of a, oh, let's put it in my car and like rock out to it. It's more of a, like a classical piece of music, I think. You just yeah. listen to it and let it, it's ambiance, it washes over. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And uh, no, this, this was one that I, I knew I definitely wanted to, uh, in, definitely wanted to include in this. Uh, because it is one that I, it it felt like Zimmer's music going to a completely different level, um, yeah. you know. And one of the things that I like about one of the things I love about all three of my scores here is that they they all really do feel like soundscapes in a lot of ways. I haven't seen I I haven't seen Thin Red Line since theaters. Um, I do need to revisit because of the fact I have much more of an appreciation for Malik now than I did when the Thin Red Line came out. So I'm curious right. to see if I feel differently about it, because I thought it was fine, but yeah, the, the voice, like you talked about, the, the voiceover just really kind of took me out of the movie with so much of it. Um, but, uh, so, 
with the thin red line, I I actually pulled out uh, one of my old mixed magazines, which was one of the magazines I subscribed to in college to learn about recording and stuff like that. They did a they they did a piece on the sound for the Thin Red Line, uh, and included <coughs> music for include the discussion on uh, the music, which uh, Zimmer famously worked tireless on. Uh, I think he I think I read they wrote like six hours of music or something at yeah. some point. Um, and. Uh, I think he wrote it before. I think Malik asked him to write the score, yeah, and so he, he he wrote pieces, and then Malik played it. On yeah, set. It, it's very much it's very much uh, the Ennio Morricone approach yeah. to film music, uh, which I mean Morricone like they played Ecstasy of Gold on the set of The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly during that mm-hmm. scene. Um, but yeah, so up until the end, he was writing new orchestral cues, recording. Uh, Tycho drums and sing beside Malik in the editing room with picture editors Billy Weber, Leslie Jones, and Sarah Klein, and he handled it all with grace. Uh, it was saying about how Zimmer arguably had the most pressure on him as as that film was coming to the finish line. We never really had a spotting session. The way it started, which seemed like a good idea at the time, was that I would write music first and Terry would cut the picture to the music. We are doing that sometimes, and sometimes we are not. It's been intensely collaborative, and it's been wrought with frustration because you're striving for that level of excellence and simplicity and truth. I I think the idea of simplicity and truth is central to the Thin Red Line score. <laughs> I, I, I think it's... it Even if I don't necessarily... I feel like if if you gave me, and I, I really kind of wish we had gotten this on the Criterion disc, I don't think they did this because, I mean, it's not really something that people have done on disc, but if, they, if you'd given me an isolated score with that movie, I, I think I could just watch John Toll's images and yeah. listen to the score... And just be completely transported. I might feel more. I might feel strongly about what Malik was trying to accomplish with the idea of uh, the impacts on war, of war and humanity on nature. And I, I feel like I might have felt that way even more than I did in his film. Uh, you mentioned Journey to the Line, which of course is the most famous uh, cue from this movie. Um, and probably the most famous example of that metronomic rhythm. Yeah. 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 And uh, I, I actually uh, shared a piece that I wrote back in 1999, shortly after this score came out, called Ethereal Atmospheres, which was very much inspired by this. Uh, there's, Great piece. There's, yeah, Great piece. There, there's, there's a little bit of Thin Red Line inspired. There's a little bit of Beyond Rangoon, which was, was mm. another score of Zimmers that I was listening to at the time because of the use of the pan flute in that piece and then um and then there was this piano aspect that i actually kind of lifted from uh james horner's score for ransom to show you just how much uh my early musical work was inspired by film music um it was kind of a frankenstein monster but i really love 
that piece, and it, it it's you know it's not something I I feel like I've done stronger work since, but I think this shows it it's an example of my love for film music coming out, and you know I was great I'm grateful to be able to present that piece in a way, and I'll I'll tack it on to the uh, end of this this podcast for you to listen, uh, although it's available elsewhere. Um, where you can you can listen to the inspiration by I was able to manage to make it its own piece as well. Uh, that's one of the things I love about the Thin Red Line score is that it it has these ideas of Asian sounds, of ethnic sounds that really come into play that we've heard in stuff like Rain Man and The Power of One and World Apart and Rain and uh, The Lion King and Black Rain, but it's done in a different context. It's done in a much more ethereal context. And this this is another one like Broken Arrow. Like that one is a more visceral soundscape to listen to. This is a more ambient, like you said, it's a more ambient one. And it's, it, if I, it, 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 it washes over me like a great piece of classical music. And it's it's like listening to classical music, and I think that's one of the things that I really appreciate is that it felt like Zimmer pushing himself in a way that he he felt like he needed to challenge himself. Yeah, well, it's it's Terrence Malick. I think Thin Red Line was his big uh, comeback after what Badlands was first, and then Days of Heaven. And then he didn't make another movie yeah. for like 20 years. <laughs> so that was like his big comeback. So obviously you want to be, it's a great honor. And then obviously speaking of like, because Zimmer had associated with Malik before, because I know that he, uh, for everybody likes the, the theme for true romance, right? That yeah. you're so cool theme. But when you listen, and again, Badlands, Badlands was a huge, you know, Bonnie and Clyde, obviously, but Badlands was a huge influence on true romance, especially the way that it, you know, the story plays out. And it's interesting when you watch Badlands after watching True Romance and you hear, I was the Carl, Carl Orff, the, the Gossenhauer yeah. track that use, is used for Badlands is almost identical to You're So Cool. Mm-hmm. And I know we talked about like sampling and stuff like that before, but You're So Cool is, it's almost exactly the same. Like yeah. It's the same track. Yeah. So as much as I love You're So Cool, like whenever people talk about that, I'm like, yeah, but you know, have you listened to the, the, the Gossenhauer? Because that's the actual thing, you know, so... That, that was just a little bit of a side, but I always, I always like bringing that up because we're talking samples, people feeding into others. I, I think the mission kind of has for Morricone feeds in the Thin Red Line more than a lot of other yeah. um, uh, uh, scores that Zimmer uses or for you know that kind of thing. But as far as like writing the music for it and pushing himself and making these these long concert pieces or six hours, you know, of uh, and then having Malik look at it and kind of chop it up from a four hour down to like a three hour movie. And I think the choppiness of the score works for the movie because the movie is very choppy. It's taking different you know people mm-hmm. and giving them reminiscing moments. So I think the score works beautifully. It's like poetic for that. But if you were to listen, I, I don't know, like you talk about a, a music only track. I don't know. I don't know if it would sound, you know, you know what I mean? Like would it, would it sound choppy because the movie itself is choppy? That, that, I, actually, that would be interesting. That's, that's a very good point. That That is a very good point. Yeah. And again, I haven't seen the Thin Red Line in almost twenty-five years now. So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm def it, it's something I definitely need to go back to. I uh, definitely check out. Yeah, I mean, it could very well be choppy. 
uh, for, yeah. but for you, the you, reasons that you mentioned. Yeah, you talking about it could work as a silent movie. You could just have images. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. Like I agree with that. Like the one thing you know, sometimes that narration it does it's okay. You don't <laughs> like obviously you're talking over things that I'm getting. Now that's my problem with a lot of narration. But as far as like a visual, I think it's visual poetry in red line just because of all the images that juxtapose it, the war and the beauty of nature and things like that like we've mentioned is is you know i don't know i just think it it, it works for that movie um but coming back to, i don't it would be it would be interesting hearing it as a music only track to see how it sounds and again i think la la land we're talking mentioned them a lot they did release like a four disc version of that soundtrack too that you can hear a lot of the more complete intentions that zimmer was going for yeah, and there was a and there was a second CD released like months months after the original theatrical uh, the original soundtrack of it that includes a lot of the chants that they uh, built right. off of for right. some of the music. But um, you know, going to journey of the journey to the line, you know, you we've both talked about how there are cues such as in uh, the Peacemaker. You, you talk about how propulsive uh, the chase scene is for the Peacemaker. Journey to the Line is propulsive in a very different way uh, because you, you have the rhythm that starts to, you know, build very gradually, and then as the strings start to come in, you, you start to feel more and more tension, and then it <clears> brings <throat> into this just pure explosion with the, the brass, coming in and just absolutely hammering home the emotional impact. I mean, there's a reason this became a very famous uh, cue to use in soundtracks, in trailers, because of the fact that it has that natural build to it. I mean, it's not the first time, it's not the last time something Zimmer did would do that. I mean, you know, he, there's, of course, the, the blah that he used in Inception. <laughs> Right. Uh, that very much uh, started to seep into trailers uh, at that point. But, um, yeah, with Journey to the Line, it's just such another beast in general. And if you're a, patr if you're a Patreon uh, subscriber, actually, I did do a video, an audio essay on the scores of Terrence Malick mm -hmm. and talking about the different ones. Because I, I do agree... Yeah, yes, of course, Malik was a big part of the reason for the challenge for Zimmer, but one of the things that I really started to notice as I was listening to his score to the scores for his films more after Hidden Lights, which I absolutely adore, is the way you have composers as varied as Ennio Morricone for Days of Heaven, Hans Zimmer for The Thin Red Line, James Horner for The New World, and James Newton Howard for in life, who it it's almost like they're all at the surface of or Alexander Desplat for Free of Life. Yeah. And they all are very individualistic composers in their own right, but with Malik, Malik seems to be the ultimate creative force behind those scores. Yep. Because you you can tell different things that keep popping up in those scores, different ways of composing. And yeah, it's certainly a challenge for the composer, but for the, the filmmaker, 
to almost be as much of the author of those scores as the composer is. It's it's really kind of fascinating to uh, to listen to his uh, the scores for his films in that context. And so if you if you're a Patreon subscriber, check that out. I released it a couple of years ago uh, during the pandemic. It's really fascinating. Yeah, that's, I think something that's interesting is, you know, playing Zimmer's music on set to kind of get everybody in the mood. And then everything with Malik is kind of a plaything. You know, when he's editing the movie together, the music becomes secondary to kind of support the images. And I don't, because like you said, he's the driving force. So the intention of the composer, I know that Zimmer tried to write motifs for different characters um, in there, but then when you remove, like you fully remove like an Adrian Brody character or stuff like that in the editing process, it, it becomes less about the composer's intentions, it's purely about the director's intentions. Yeah. That's a very interesting point as far as Malik goes. Choosing composers like that and then chopping them up is <laughs> definitely a choice. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I I love The Thin Red Line. I still love that score. It's 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 one that like there were there were a couple I was kind of toying with. There was another one that I was kind of toying with. Uh, they did for a uh, documentary uh, series called Millennium that I really right. love, and it really ties into more of a lot of the African type influence of his music. And I love that score still, but I wanted to choose the Thin Red Line because I feel like with the change in his perspective and the way he changed his sound around for that is such an extreme and yeah. it's such a worthwhile thing to talk about. Um, yeah. You know, we, we didn't, you know, so we're going to move forward in history and a couple of years later, he would get another Oscar nomination for his score for gladiator uh, yeah. for Ridley Scott. Um, and it's wild that I, as much as I love his score for Gladiator, I do, I am so glad Tan Dunn won for Crouching Tiger and Dragon. I, I think that, is, that was a worthy winner. But yeah. the thing that always makes it so wild for me with Zimmer was that in, Mar in May of 2000, he had Gladiator, and then a few weeks later, he had a score for Mission Impossible 2. I know you and I both wanted to talk about this one because of the fact that, look, Mission Impossible 2 is not a good movie. It's, it's, <laughs> it's really not. Like, it's, it's fine, but it feels like a par somebody parodying a John, John Woo, Woo yeah. movie more than a John Woo movie. But Zimmer's score, this was his next collaboration with uh, Woo, although he did produce John Powell's score for uh, Face Off. Um, this was his second collaboration with Wu, and there, there are things about it that I think are just as exciting to me to listen to as there are in Broken Arrow. Yeah, if you were to talk, again, I, that's definitely the lesser of all. I still like Mission Impossible 2 as far as it trying to be a James Bond ripoff. I think it works better than most James Bond movies. But you're right, it does rise to kind of parodic kind of levels with the doves and things like that. But that score... And again, he incorporated, he worked with Lisa Gerard on both Gladiator and this one. So you talked about Show Me Your Fire Truck being one of my favorite tracks. You're talking about You're So Cool being one of my favorite tracks. The injection 
which if, if you're talking about Mission Impossible 2 being a bad movie, the part that works, and I think works beautifully, is the part where, you know, Ethan and uh, the, the Sean character are confronting each other finally again, talking about the brothers, the dichotomy, which doesn't, yeah. again, maybe works less well than it did in Broken Arrow and Mission Impossible 2, and that's definitely there. But when the Naya character comes in, what's, and that track is all, because it's an action scene, right? As soon as she injects herself with the virus, all of a sudden Lisa Gerard's vocals kick in. And the backstory of that is, I think Zimmer wanted, or no, John Wu wanted an action-oriented piece for that whole thing when uh, Ethan's trying to fend off Sean's goons and things like that and trying to protect Nia at the same time. He wanted a very action-driven cue, but Zimmer and Tom Cruise looked at it and said, this scene is about the Nia character. It needs to be her focus. And And that's, you go through an hour and what, 20 minutes of not knowing who's on what side. And then finally it turns out that Naya is like, she's in it for Ethan and she's sacrificing this for him. And, and there's the part where he goes like, you, you know, I thought you said you weren't going to risk yourself. He's like, I wasn't trying to, I was just trying to keep from getting hurt. And the way that the action stuff drowns out and the action, like the gunfights are kind of muffled and the Gerard vocals are very up and up, and, up you know, front and center. It's a gorgeous piece of work because of the way that it backs off. Yeah. from what you'd normally expect. And it makes it very character-driven. It's just a beautiful, again, beautiful sound, beautifully uh, the idea of it. So again, same Mission Impossible 2 is a bad movie, which I'm not going to argue with you on that. But that scene in itself is a great scene and a great use of movie music in an otherwise not very good movie. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those, and it's one of those scenes where you see John Woo being John Woo. And this is, yeah. this is like John Woo... This is the John Woo you know and love if you know and love John Woo. Um, yeah. It kind of works the same way that the Somewhere Over the, the Rainbow is. That's, is that yeah, the one I was, for Bayside? I was going to say that as well way. because, yeah, it, it works in the exact same way because of the fact that you, you have the slow motion and you have, but the music comes up and mm-hmm. it really hammers home the emotional aspect of what this scene is about. And I, you know, credit Zimmer and Tom Cruise for making that him realize that it's like, no, no, this is the focus of the scene. And um yeah. no, that 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 scene is absolutely beautiful. And yeah, that that music is absolutely wonderful. Um I might I might have mixed that up. I, my memory is not what he used. It might have been the opposite way. It might have been Tom Cruise and Zimmer wanting the action heavy and then Wu wanting the either way, no matter no matter what, I think the way what they decided on for the movie, I think that that's what works. It was the right choice. Movies. It was absolutely yeah, yeah. the right choice. Um, you know, and and this was a year. This was a run. This started another run for Zimmer of just very successful scores. You know, he had done so. He had done Gladiator. He'd done MI two, and then he had also the next year he would do Pearl Harbor and uh, Black Hawk Down. And uh, then he uh, he would not compose Curse of the Black Pearl because he was working on The Last Samurai, but he would eventually take over that franchise. Uh, but as he was taking over that franchise, he also, you know, we talked about the Batman trilogy, the Dark Knight trilogy mm-hmm. from Nolan, and that was his first collaboration with Nolan. And... Um, and another case of, I think Nolan asked Zimmer, I think Zimmer was really busy, and Nolan was like, I, could you write a piece for me so I can use it on set? And so they, I think that was the, uh, the, the, the chase scene sequence or something that he wrote, that yeah. he, Nolan was able to use it either for editing or something like that before. 
the music was even completed. So again, another case of that. There's a lot of that was Zimmerson's. Yeah. And then actually there's another franchise that you became a part of that is much more obscure now. Nobody, barely people, people don't, don't really remember it, but it's, <laughs> and it was your third choice in uh, Ron Howard's The Da Vinci Code, which he scored. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, I have to say, I, I appreciate you choosing this one because it made me remember what I liked about that score and why it stood out to me so much. I mean, look, I, I love the music for the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. It's basically a lot of the same thing for three plus movies, at least for the Gore Verbinski movie. <laughs> I, I, yeah. love the, I love the music, but it's essentially the same thing each time. Mm-hmm. The thing that I love about Da Vinci Code, and it's interesting that we have, and I'll have a question about for you for this uh, after, but the thing I love about Da Vinci Code is that there, there are parts of it that allow Zimmer to continue with that theor- thriller aesthetic that he came to be known for in the 80s, 90s, and the aughts, but the way he uses religiously associated uh, sound, like the like organ, like pipe organ, like choir, and that type of uh, that type of music, the Sanskrit in a lot of ways that we we've heard Williams use before. We've you know we've heard in The Shining. Um, I I love. I forgot how distinct that score is. And I mean, part of it is because again, it's another movie I haven't seen theatrical since theatrical, and you know, it's it's an okay <laughs> movie. I mean, you know, I know it's I know there are things to complain about with regards to Tom Hanks and the role, but yeah, you know, I thought it was a decent thriller. But I I do love this is a case where Zimmer's music really elevates the film to a more operatic. Uh, perspective that I think it, the movie does not really come up to. And my question is, because this is the second Ron Howard movie we're talking about. Ah, interesting. Would you, <laughs> who, because, you know, all of these filmmakers, you know, there are all of these filmmaker-composer collaborations over the years that were revered. You know, obviously John Williams, Steven Spielberg, Tim Burton, Danny Elfman, Bernard Ehrman, <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock, who is there a film compose? Is there a composer, one director that you would say has that um, has that rapport with Zimmer? There is one. It might be controversial to say so, especially for how people look at this director now. I know he's got a very strong collaboration with Ridley Scott. Um, very strong collaboration with Tony Scott. They've got again. We're using this word a lot. Soundscapes. Very good soundscapes. And, Black Hawk Down is a, is a great score yeah. working in as the opposite of the Pearl Harbor over saccharin. Um, we won't talk about Pearl Harbor being a terror, but Black Hawk Down is like the opposite of Pearl Harbor as far as it not being saccharin and being like very focused on the matter at hand. 
no matter how much people are like, oh, how come it doesn't incorporate like the, the enemy's perspective? It's just about the U.S. Marines perspective or whatever. Because that's the point of the movie. That's the whole yeah, focus of the exactly. movie. That's what makes it great. Whether you want it to be other things or not, it, that's the decision that they made. Again, Black Hawk Down is very good. Hannibal, the score they did after Black Hawk Down, again, very oh, operatic, great the, score. I forgot about Hannibal. I love yeah. the, there's a cue on Hannibal I absolutely love. Um, Which cue? The, uh, oh, what's the name of it? The... Uh, it, it's got dialogue over it on the soundtrack. It's the uh, gallows or the. Uh, oh, let, let the, something be my gallows, yes, right? Yes. Let my home be my gallows, right? Yeah. yeah. Gorgeous piece. Again, very, yeah. again, opera, like symphonic kind of. I, I love that. So Ridley Scott's got a good um, rapport with him. I think, I think, and then Penny Marshall, he, he worked with her a lot and has with Preacher's Wife and Leo the Rome and. Uh, Writing in Cars with Boys and Renaissance Man. So again, he's worked with directors because they like going to him. But I think that maybe Nolan, Christopher Nolan works, I love their work together just because of the way that you listen, you watch interviews with Nolan and you watch interviews with Zimmer and them talking about each other, just the way that Nolan tries to push him. Like the one, your last choice we're going to talk about, like he wrote, he asked Zimmer to write a piece, just giving him some dialogue and then writing the movie around that. So that's, and obviously Dunkirk being a character in itself like the score being a character um the you know again the batman scores just just pushing him and for new things and working with each other and working in tandem to make each other like better i think they've got fascinating work together as far as like the highs and lows of their movies that they're working together and the the way that people look at those i think that it's just a fascinating kind of relationship um that they have what (laughs) i don't know what do you think I, I think no one I think no one is a really good choice. I definitely would I, I do definitely think uh, Ridley Scott's in the conversation. It's funny because of the fact that um it's funny because of the fact that I was also thinking about Ron Howard because of the fact that we're talking about two of his films. But it goes beyond those two films with uh, him and Zimmer because, you know, the movie gets a lot of shit, but he also scored Hillbilly Elegy for Ron mm-hmm. Howard. He scored, I believe he scored both of the sequels to Da Vinci Code. Um, And he also did a terrific score in Rush. Yeah. Um, And I think there's at least one or two more. But I think, you know, but, you know, for a long time I would have said, oh, well, the composer that Ron Howard has that collaboration with more is James Horner because of Apollo 13, because of uh, Willow, Cocoon, Willow, I... But I I think their collabor I think his collaboration with Howard is really kind of interesting. I mean, I, it's not it's not to say that I think it it's resulted in certainly it hasn't necessarily resulted in the best work I think for either of them. Although I mean, I I do think uh, although I mean I do think that. Uh, you know, I, I think Rush is an excellent movie. Uh, Backdraft is a really strong movie. But I, I think there are some interesting things. It It's almost like Zimmer is pushed Howard, I think, to a certain extent to sort of be darker in their collaboration together. And it's actually kind of interesting that that's the case. Yeah, in the heart of the sea in Russia, I don't love Ron Howard as a director. I think he's more of a vanilla kind of director. He doesn't really have, other than the theme of family, like he doesn't really have a lot of personality. Um, I don't, I'm going to say something controversial. I don't think his direction is fine for a beautiful mind, but I don't think that movie is very good. Um, 
as far as other things goes, but, and I have my reasons for, we won't get onto that because it's a separate <laughs> thing, but it's interesting talking about Ron Howard, because if you go back to backdrop, they did have that kind of uh, conflict or that friction where Ron Howard wanted the dark black rain score and Zimmer wanted a more heroic. And so I think there's, they had a history of like butting heads. And then with Da Vinci Code, it's funny because I, I didn't, it didn't occur to me that they were both Ron Howard movies. I might've made a different choice if, the, if it came to that. But as far as me choosing that movie, I think Zimmer and Howard were in a conversation in some kind of uh, function that they were a celebrity function. And Howard or Zimmer asked Howard, what are you doing next? And Howard talked, oh, I'm doing Da Vinci Code. And Zimmer kind of made fun of him. Oh, are you taking that book that like doesn't work as a movie? Like it's just characters expositing at each other for like 400 pages. You're going to take that and make it into a movie. But then they started sparking up a conversation about where that was going. I did have a very specific reason for picking Da Vinci Code because it ties in with some Hans Zimmer controversy. But um, I, I don't know if it's relative necessarily his greatest score, one of his great scores. But as far as a music score, like you said, elevating a movie that's not very good and making it good, that is probably one of the prime examples. <laughs> that uh, The score for Da Vinci Code is so simple. Again, it's like a, a symphony piece. It's yeah. like a classical piece. And so it... Da Vinci Code is weird because it's such a silly movie to me. It's like, it's so poetic <laughs> and it's so self-serious, but it's about like, like God, like laying treasure, like a treasure hunt to find and like puzzle pieces. And, and it's like so silly and they're expositing at each other and just talking. So, and then Ian McKellen shows up and he's the saving grace of that movie because he shows up and he's got a, a glint in his eye. And he's like, yeah, this is dumb, but I'm going to, and I'm going to treat it dumb and you'll have fun as opposed to yeah. the rest of it. I think there's even a car chase in the middle of the Da Vinci Code that for, they're being chased by nobody. And it, like, <laughs> it's pulse pounded because they had to have something in there. It's so weird. But as far as the musical piece, it's, it's weird because, and here's the reason I chose it, not because it's just greater than the movie itself, but Zimmer has a way, and the, the tracks on, I've got the soundtrack right here. The, the, it's got 14 tracks on it, and track 9 through 13, um, Poison Chalice, The Citrine Cross, Rose of Arimathea, Beneath Alwisha, and Chevalier de Sangreal. Zimmer wrote that as a concert piece. He wrote it as a five-piece suite mm -hmm. that they recorded the first day in the, in the recording session. I think Ron Howard said something like that. So they record, again, it's like a symphony piece. It's like a classical music piece that Zimmer wrote. And it's gorgeous. Like every movement of that suite, you know, it's, it's something that Zimmer, again, he tried it with Batman Begins. He tried it with Hannibal, trying for that classical kind of tone. But I think he reached a height with those, that five-suite piece that's just gorgeously <laughs> paced and what it does, and I think Zimmer does this a lot, is he writes like, he'll write a big suite. I know he did it for The Ring. I know he did it for Dark Phoenix. He definitely did it for Da Vinci Code. And Pirates of the Caribbean, he even famously did that. He wrote the theme for it, even though Bedell took over uh, composer duties. Mm -hmm. um, but he basically will write a suite of themes, and then he'll use that suite to kind of pepper and separate and use throughout the rest of the movie itself. He uses that as kind of the influence of what he's yeah. going to write. But then a controversy with that is Zimmer, obviously the, the big backlash of him is he's got all the people that worked for him through media ventures and now remote control productions, right? The, the names we talked about, mm -hmm. the Powell and the Harry Griggs and Williams and the, um, uh, Jablonski and the Benjamin Walsh that you just did Shazam. You know, he's got this whole roster of people, but Zimmer's always accused of not writing his own stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's accused of kind of writing something and then giving it to his people, but he takes all the credit for it, even though on the, marketing purpose it'll say music by Hans Zimmer but then on the soundtracks he'll credit all the other people yeah and that's one of the things that got Dark Knight in trouble because it had like four or five different composers and they couldn't the academy couldn't vote it for yeah. some reason 
because you know they're getting more money for the reader or whatever, but they couldn't like nominate that. Um, so there is that controversy with him writing a piece and then having his people write it. But in a way, it also gives his people a career. Yeah. Like if, if it wasn't for Zimmer giving these pieces to people and letting them run with it, we wouldn't have all these other soundscapes of all these other composers who become great. In the, I know Powell's great in his own right, but Delk's great in his own right. Jackman's kind of uh, inching up there, Henry Jackman. Yeah. So it gives his people another, so he's able to do that and give credit where credit is due. That's another reason why, you know, because he wrote the suite and then he, I think Da Vinci Cody worked on it all himself. And that's what makes it better. That's kind of the tradition with him. You'll write a suite and it'll hand it out because he does what, two, three movies a year, which is hard. Yeah. Uh, but that gets a lot of controversy. But again, it, it has its its drawbacks. It has its places. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I mean, I I think this is this is, and it's funny because uh, a lot of the same things that are incorporated into Da Vinci Code's score, uh, like the. Re- religiously uh the religiously music the religious music aspect of it really does kind of tie into my last score too um but i mean one of the things i also want to do with this is i i also do want to bring in like other talk about other scores along the way because i mean obviously not going into as much depth as we do with the uh with the the six that we are uh talking about here But um, he did the holiday for Nancy Myers, which I I love that score. It's a wonderful, beautiful. Uh, yeah. The Simpsons movie, I love the score he did for the Simpsons movie. <laughs> uh, he did do Frost Nixon for Ron Howard as well. Yeah, and he right. did do both of the uh, both of the sequels to Da Vinci Code: Angels and Demons and uh, Inferno. Inferno. Um, and then of course uh, because of his. No- Nolan, he got Inception, which also got an Oscar nomination for him. His, and then he also did the Sherlock Holmes movies, which we talked about those scores and absolutely love those scores. Yeah, uh, he did Rango and The Weatherman for Verbinski as well. Uh, and then he beca- partially also because of the uh, Nolan connection, he also did Man of Steel and started off with uh, and then did uh, Batman versus Superman. Uh, and wrote the Wonder Woman theme, which is very yeah. probably the most iconic out of all, all the scores. Yeah. yeah. The theme. And uh, he he also did The Lone Ranger with Verbinski, which regardless of what you think about that movie, it's a tremendous score, I think. I, I think mm-hmm. he did a really great job with that. Um, and uh, that brings us to 2014, which is uh, when he released Interstellar with Christopher Nolan. And this... <clears throat> This is, I mean, depending on the day, this is my favorite uh, Hans Zimmer score. Um, it's, yeah, it's a good one. Very good one. And it's because of, you You mentioned the collaboration with Nolan earlier, and especially with the way that, you know, Nolan basically gave him a dialogue to compose to beforehand. And this is this to me is as impactful and as, Game changing a compo a score for Zimmer as the Thin Red Line, um, but it's something that's really interesting because of the fact that, in a way, it keeps with that classical idea that he was really diving into with the Thin Red Line, 
but in the way that it uses the church organ, which they record in an actual church uh, in Germany, I think, if I remember correctly. Uh, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. And that's his, the way that he uses that really envelopes the film in the same way as synthesizers do. And it's funny because of the fact that, like, so the the one place that would definitely hear this, um, and I basically point it out because of the fact that um, it's it's really captured me ever since I heard this score, and I absolutely love love this score. I I really wish that this had won him an Oscar. Um, of course, there are a few other scores that we've talked about along the way that I wish he'd won an Oscar for uh, before finally getting one that his second one this year for Dune. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's during the, on the soundtrack, it's uh, dust. And there's this motif that ended up being one of the main motifs where it's like, bum, 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 bum. And, you mm -hmm. know, you, you talk about these different motifs and and the, the, the one I'm thinking about goes, do, 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 do. I, I can't, I, for some reason, as a composer, I still have a hard time, like, <laughs> doing melodies. But there's one that you'll, it's definitely, it's one of the ones that is very uh, prominent in the score. Uh, it's funny because of the fact that I have a, I'm not saying anything one way or the other. I just, you know, if, if he somehow listened to this and decided to incorporate this theme into his music, believe I'm more flattered than upset, but there's a... So, in 2010, I released Beyond the Infinite, which is my uh, my personal soundtrack to 2001 Space Odyssey. <laughs> I gave myself that challenge in college, and it took about a decade to finally come into fruition. I was going to do, like, an alternative soundtrack to 2001. Anybody who knows me, anybody who listened to the episode of Untold Cinema Gals, where we talked about that soundtrack, knows I adore that. It's foundational to me. Um, but there's there's actually a motif that in some of my soundtrack for that that it sounds similar to one of the motifs uh, Zimmer does in Interstellar, and it's it's funny because they both are ambitious films about space travel, about <laughs> going beyond uh, what we currently know as far as uh, science. And it's really, it, it was just, as soon as it hit me that that was kind of similar, it's like, oh, wow, that's, that's it's, I can't unhear it now. But it's like the idea that he might have heard my music at some point was like, oh, that's an interesting theme. And using the score, which I absolutely adore, um, it, it would be very flattering for me. Uh, but going to Interstellar, again, we have this idea of propulsion, like the uh, the sequence on the planet with man, the Matt Damon character. Uh, the, the cue for that is it's just very consistently uh, builds, and you've got that rhythm that we were talking about earlier. And then the organ and the orchestra comes in, and it's it's basically just building to this climax 
And it's it's really just fascinating. So much of his scores really deal in propulsion in that way. And <laughs> I it, it's part of what makes them such a pleasure to listen to from a musical standpoint. Uh but yeah, it's it's really kind of it's it, it this the score is absolutely wonderful. And then uh No Time for Caution is a tremendous yeah. score uh cue that really I I can listen to that so so much. It's just absolutely wonderful. Yeah, that uh, again with the metronomic rhythm. Um, we talked about the religiosity between Da Vinci Code. I like how these are tying together. We talked about the religiosity between Da Vinci Code and Interstellar. I know that for Da Vinci Code, they recorded in Abbey Road Studios in London, I believe, because Harry Gregson Williams, uh, the, I believe the backstory, Harry Gregson Williams worked on the score for Light and Witch in the Wardrobe. And Zimmer liked kind of the, or the cavernous kind of feel, the religiosity of that score. And so that's why they recorded Da Vinci Code in Abbey Road Studios. With Interstellar, what I love about that score, I think there's literally an interview where Zimmer says we wanted to have a different soundscape than we'd had for uh, Batman begin for the Batman scores and for Inception, where everybody's expecting the boom, you know, kind of sound, and they wanted yeah. a different soundscape. And just having it play on that uh, the organ, I think it's the Harrison and Harrison organ, something like that, famously that they used. And again, that's religiosity in a nutshell. Right? It kind of gets you it, the way that the the thing. I think they describe it as like Zimmer like falling asleep on the keyboard yeah. <laughs> and the note just building and building. But it works for the movie. And you talk about, you know, we talked about how Nolan gave Zimmer, well, what, how would you score this if I just gave you the dialogue? And he wrote him a piece. Interstellar is such a, a huge epic movie and it's a giant science fiction, you know, giant scope science fiction epic that you need that human level. The, the, we can talk about the special effects. We can talk about what it, you know, what the, the Tesseract means at the end of that and all that stuff that they, they're trying to aim for. But what really got me about that movie is, and the scene that kills me, because he leaves his daughter and every, they're on that planet with the waves and they're on the planet for what, like seven minutes. And because of that, like yeah. 10 years or 12 years go by. And, and when they realizes that the heartbreak of that, I mean, yeah. the, my kids, if I had to stay away from them for that long and weren't, weren't able to see them grow up, there's just something so heartbreaking about that. That's the heart of Interstellar that I don't think the movie would work as well if it didn't have that humanness mm-hmm. that I think Nolan was shooting for. They wanted Zimmer to kind of, you know, hit those notes. Oh, yeah. Uh, so to it speak. Was, oh yeah. It was famous at that time because of the fact that like Nolan was upfront about it where it's like, oh, he's trying to do something more emotional because of the fact yeah. that there was there was a knock about him being very clinical in his being very straight-faced and serious in terms of not really going for the big emotional beats. I mean, you know, this, I think this, to a certain extent, this, I think at one point, this was a movie that Jonathan Nolan had done, had, and they were going to do, he was going to write for Spielberg. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, that makes a lot of sense. So it's like, that was, that was a huge conversation when this came out. But, you know, and the, this, I think it's called Time on the yep. uh, the the soundtrack that and that that moment where he's saying goodbye to his daughter and it just breaks your heart and sticks with him and she's pleading for him not to go and it that that moment just is going to inform the entire movie it's going to inform those characters throughout the rest of the movie. And 
it wouldn't work with Zimmer taking the same type of approach that they did on Inception or the Dark Knight trilogy. You needed something more contemplative and more uh, quietly devastating along the lines of the Thin Red Line. Um, and then, yeah, you, you have combining these two different ideas of uh, sacred music, this quiet emotional music that is basically like a prayer, and then this bigger, more outward, uh, this outward expression of religious uh, feeling from the pipe organ. And, you know, you you would expect that this score would have choir all over it. Like, you can see that being the case, but it's all just orchestra and and pipe organ. You don't need words. You don't need, you don't need vocal words as a part of this score. It just is the way that Zimmer crafts this music and builds this music is that's where the emotion comes from and you know nolan to be and yeah you're you're right i mean nolan really is the that is the collaboration that i think zimmer is gonna be best remembered for i mean i i think he's got i think he's got interesting collaboration with brown Howard. i think he's got great collaboration with ridley scott and gore verbinski <laughs> but it's going to be his collaboration with nolan on the Batman movies, Inception, Interstellar, and Dunkirk that people point to as the definitive one. And it's because of the fact that I think there were time because there are times in it that, you know, Nolan lets him experiment and does something and kind of follows his own train of thought. But there are also times where he lets like especially with Interstellar and Dunkirk, really changes things profoundly in his sound in the way he does that sound. And it's funny because I wasn't a huge fan of the Dunkirk score when I saw it in theaters. Par partially because I do think that sound design that sound mix is a bad. But when I started listening to it individually, it's like, oh, okay, this is a different. I, I definitely have greater appreciation for the score now than I did when it was in theater. Yeah, it's definitely, it's a separate piece of work from Interstellar. Interstellar is a separate piece of work from Inception. Inception is a different piece of work from the Batman. It's, you know, uh, I think he even worked on The Prestige as a producer you know, yeah. to do that. But I like that they're not trying to go for the same thing. You talk, and Ridley Scott doesn't believe that. And Verbinski, aside from the Pirates movies, they all have a very distinct sound. He does have a very, directors, I think, like working with Zimmer because they're, it's collaborative. Like they're working with each other and make each other like their images better and the music better. And it's, it definitely makes it a character. I think out of all the movies, probably Dunkirk and Interstellar, the music is as much of a character as the actual characters go. And so that's why I like those scores and pulsiveness as we talked about with those. Mm -hmm. um, but again, I just think uh, Nolan himself is a challenging director. Tenet's obviously very challenging as a movie. But, you know, Nolan's a very challenging director. He's trying to push limits. He's trying to do the blockbuster. And I don't know of another director, maybe aside from Villeneuve, um, trying to do the blockbuster epics, but also making them cerebral and intellectual. 
the Batman movies, again, are very intellectual, even though yeah. some people might look at that. Some of the stuff in there is, you know, it's a comic book movie. It's kind of dumb that you're trying to aim for the intellectual. Again, they're aiming for a higher level than what typical blockbusters go for. I think that's, and it, maybe it's the impactfulness. I know Crimson Tide it was very impactful. You know, Tony Scott helped me do that. You know, we talked about trailer, like Malik, the, the during the line showing up in trailers. Zimmer's made an impact. Like when your music starts showing up in other trailers and other people try to copy your your sound that you made from a movie in trailers, you know, that kind of thing. It's very impactful. I just think as far as all those collaborations go, I think Nolan is the one that really pushed those those limits, those movies yeah. tried to make more of a, a character for the scores. Yeah. No, definitely. Um and uh yeah, inter, interstellar. It, oh God, I, I just, I, I, I love listening to that score. I, I, I love the, the again, all of these, all my three favorites have to do with soundscapes, and I mean that, that's something that's very much been something that I've done a lot as a composer, as as an individual composer, as a film composer. You, you, you know, I, I've tried to do more to serve the story in a more traditional sense. Um, but whether, you know, in the short films that I've done and the feature that I'm working on, I, you know, that's, you know, if if somebody, but I will say, like, you know, I'd be curious to see if somebody says, okay, so this is what you're used to. Let me see what you have in mind. And, you know, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see if this leads to anything in the future, but I mean, I, I'm sure I'll have other scores that I do, but, um, you know, going back to Zimmer, I, I, I just, you know, the, the music in his work is, I mean, even something like I, I'm, I'm struck by how much I appreciate his work from No Time to Die. Like the James Bond franchise has such a codified sound to it over the years. I mean, I think that's one of the things I like about one of the things that is so interesting about the Daniel Craig movies is that, you know, David Arnold had done a few scores for the Bond films before Casino Royale. I think what he did for Casino Royale just takes it to a different level. And so I mean part of that is because he's not he's not um leaning on the Bond theme because it's essentially an origin. Yeah, you can't uh, do that, right? Thomas Newman, when he did Skyfall, is coming from a different uh, musical perspective. He's coming from his own perspective, but he still makes it resolutely a Bond film. Bond score, and Hans Zimmer did the exact same thing in No Time to Die. And it was like, I, you know, oh, wow, I, I forgot that this was possible. But, I mean, I, I think, <laughs> you know, I think that also comes to... Uh, Daniel Craig wanting to put his stamp on the franchise too. Yeah. Um, like the dimensional, that's, that's interesting. It is very, it's not a very Zimmery score other than um, when I say it's not a very Zimmery score, cause he's doing a James Bond movie. You want to make it very James Bondy. Yeah. And so you don't, so it sounds, the thing I love about the side, the Skyfall score is it harkens back to, you know, John Barry's music. It's a very classical look mm -hmm. at, it's trying to bring James Bond back to those roots of the John Barry days. And No Time to Die has a lot of that too, the way it incorporates obviously John Barry's scores and things like that. But other than the, there's a piece toward the end when they're the siege on that island or whatever, where it, it, 
deliberately or, or flat out cribs from the uh, the molasses track from Batman Begins, <laughs> the chase scene. It, it literally sounds just like that. Other than that, um, it's not a very Zimmery score because again, he's trying to service um, uh, you know the Bond franchise and the Bond legacy, and so he has a way of doing that too. You don't want to come to a, a what a 25, 26 movies by the time No Time to Die roll. You don't want to come in and like take the legacy away. Yeah. Thing. yeah. You want to serve that. So again, it's interesting because you've got Maverick and you've got No Time to Die that were delayed because of COVID. Maybe we're planning on being released around the same time, but they kind of do the same thing. Maybe No, maybe opposite things as far as No Time to Die trying to serve the franchise legacy and then Maverick being a better propulsive score than the 86 version. Was. Yeah. It's just interesting to me the different kind of approaches to both of the scores, especially since they were both delayed by a couple of years. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I, I think, you know, with uh, Maverick, I, I think it's the combination of, you know, what we're familiar with, with the uh, Fulton Myers score, as well as Zimmer's aesthetic, and then the way they use the Lady Gaga song, the way they right. use the music for Hold My Hand, I think is just so wonderful in that movie. And, Basically, yeah. making that love theme is such a was such a strong choice, and um, we we haven't really talked about what are have you seen Dune? No, <laughs> I've got a whole I've got like thirty movies. Like I just tweeted something about it. I finally got a hold of a bunch of movies. Uh, uh, got a hold of the Batman. I got a hold of Drive My Car. I got a hold of Everything Everywhere All at Once. So I finally got a hold of all these movies that I wasn't able to see, but. I've got so many movies and Dune is another one of those that I've been meaning to check out, but, and I haven't heard a, a single note of the Dune score because I want to experience that with the movie. So it's something that I'll definitely get around to, but I've just, I've got so many movies that kind of yeah. catch up on Dune is on there. It's, it's, I will admit it's, I don't even know that would necessarily make my top five as far as his scores. I definitely, I, I respect how much he loves the source material, and I love how much mm-hmm. he, because I mean, there are like three albums worth of stuff. There's sketches he did, there's alternate yeah. tracks they did, and then there's the soundtrack. I mean, that is all of that stuff is interesting to listen to. Mm-hmm. Maybe I need to see the movie again, but it's like for some reason the movie just it just it felt like a Hans Zimmer score when mm-hmm. I was watching the movie. So it's like, okay, I'm glad he finally won his second Oscar. It have happened decades ago. But, um, <laughs> you know, I'm glad he finally won. But uh, I'm, I'm, glad for, I'm glad that it's something as personal uh, for him as, uh, as Dune is. Because I know that was a big yeah. deal for him to do. Uh, so before we wrap up, though, because, I mean, we've, we've covered a lot of ground. And, uh, you know, there, there's so much more that we could talk about. What are, if you could give us a few other soundtracks, whether we've talked about them or not, or brought them up or not, that are some of your favorites from Zimmer's? Okay, well, the one thing that I know we didn't talk, we mentioned um, The Holiday. Again, he's got a very, he's done action movies, he's done horror movies, he's done dramas, he's done comedies. Um, The comedies with um, Green Card is one that I want to mention. It's got... There are two tracks on there. And again, I mentioned it kind of like Driving Miss Daisy, but it's more repetitive. He has one theme that he plays over and over again with some variations on it. Mm-hmm. But on the soundtrack, it's Restless Elephants and Cafe Africa. And they, they work as a single track. Again, being Zimmer, he splits them up into two different ones. Yeah. But 
the the way that it kind of supports the Peter Weir imagery in there, um, the way that it's it's I don't know, you have to listen to it. It's a very fun, very beautiful score. There's a part toward the end of Cafe Africa that's ethereal. It's like next level to me, right? I hear it and I'm, it takes me to, a, I zone out and it takes me to a different place. It's toward the end. I think it's the last minute of Cafe Africa. It's just so gorgeously done. Like we talked about the holiday for Nancy Myers. It's very, again, it has the metronomic rhythm in, in some parts, but it's a, it's a very orchestra driven score. It's very gorgeous and it's very, I don't want to say intrusive, but you do notice the music. So I want to mention those. I know that I like his score that he worked with for John Powell for Kung Fu Panda, talking about yeah. Asian landscapes. And then, you know, there are so many, I could mention all of them. Like, you know, you talk about Tears of the Sun, like having that African influence. You could talk about, again, I love Matchstick Men. I didn't mention that. the Ridley Scott collaboration. Yeah, that, that's a very idiosyncratic. Yeah, it's idiosyncratic. It, it doesn't fit in with anything else that he's done. Um, I think the, they're all the same, but I think for At World's End, the third part of the parts of the Caribbean movie, especially since I think Dead Man's Chest might be one of his weakest scores, just because it does just copy everything that the first one did. Yeah. But the new themes that he introduced for Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End are just so wonderfully done. And the lo- new love theme he has for Will and Elizabeth is so great. It's, it takes it to a next level instead of just repeating. It has a whole new sonic bounce. And then the other one I do want to mention, I'm not a big fan of the movie itself, but I do love the Man of Steel score. If you're talking about soundscape, he creates a soundscape for Krypton. He creates the, the soundscape for Zod and his minions. Uh, it just feels so epic. And in a way, it's a detriment to the movie because it's so epic and over the top that it kind of takes away a lot of the humanness that I think you need for a Superman movie. Yeah. It's so bombastic. But, and again, you, you're not going to equal the John Williams. I'm sorry to all the people that didn't grow up on the John Williams Superman score, but that it literally says Superman. Yeah, in, yeah. The, in the music it's so iconic and you know what it is you're not going to match that i don't think zimmer's theme matches it as far as being a hero you know what no trying to no do, but if you're talking soundscapes i love the 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 way that the score envelops you it's just such a gorgeous i say that yeah. gorgeous beautiful i said this score and I, I do love it um and again another movie that, that works separate i do think that if it wasn't for his score dark phoenix would have been absolutely a travesty i think that score works it's noticeable again because what's happening on screen isn't very memorable mm-hmm. and he has a way like the the, the i'm not gonna i can't off the top of my head i can't do it but he has a theme that starts off very ominous and then at the end when the x-men are working together which is the best part of every x-men they finally work as a team he's able to take that ominous theme and he ups it an octave and it makes it heroic just by changing the octave so it, it, it i don't know so I, I do appreciate that yeah but, you know like we talked about, I could mention every Zimmer score. There's there's things about it. Maybe maybe <laughs> aside again, uh, Dead Man's Chest in Madagascar, the first one, probably my least favorite Zimmer mm-hmm. scores, just because the way they're <clears throat> just lazy. I think they're yeah. not. There's nothing I can really pull from them. Um, but yeah, Zimmer's. It, he, I got so excited like you about his scores that I would go bend over backwards to try to find bootleg copies and kind of download them from the internet. Try to find things so I could you know, put together my own suites and things like that or see how they work. Just, it got to that point where I was just so obsessed. I backed off a little bit, but <laughs> as far yeah. as composures go, I was just obsessed with everything he did and trying to tie everything mm-hmm. together. The way he has moments in every score that just envelop me and take me to another place. I love, I love his scores. I love his scores. There's nothing else. No, say. no, absolutely. Uh, I, you know, I mean, we've, we've already talked about a lot of my other favorites. I mean, Millennium is one that I absolutely love. 
Case of Thunder is one I really enjoy. I mean, it's a it's a silly it's a score, one. but it's a good one. Um, it's memorable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, I mean, yeah, we basically we we basically covered everything else. I love the Dark Knight. Um, I I I I forgot. Matchstick Man is an absolutely tremendous score of his. I, I that might be one of my favorites of his for uh, Ridley Scott. Um, that that's just such a great one, and um, and it's an anti Zimmer score. It doesn't sound anything like yeah, <laughs> yeah. what you'd expect. But and then of course the uh, Sherlock Holmes movies, which he did. Uh, and you know, as as down as I am on you know, is is kind of you know not Im- not impressed as I was with. Uh, Doing it at first, I mean, I I feel like that's a score that I'm probably going to come to appreciate more and more over the years, um, right. and uh, just just because of the fact that, especially once part two comes and we get to hear that entire out that entire theme story play out with right. Zimmer's theme, but uh, Darren, thank you very much for joining me today. Yeah. Oh man, seriously, you're being able to join you for that Orson Welles conversation, the conversation we've had, having you on for rad, like you're, again, you're one of my favorite people. And I don't know, we're just able to chat about things and, and uh, enlighten each other. At least I hope I'm able to enlighten you the way you enlighten me, but obviously in, in listening to your music and what you've composed, and I'm so excited for your new project that you have coming out that you're able to score. And I'm so excited for you. I'm so excited to listen to that score. I can't wait uh, for, to hear all that, but it's, being able to talk about stuff that I'm passionate about, yeah, especially Zimmer and the way that his music has informed my musical taste, music score taste. It's just, again, I appreciate you for having me on. I know we've chatted about this for a while and I've been itching to come back on Sonic <laughs> Cinema. And so I'm glad that we're able to do it for this. And I, I look forward to being able to have more conversations. With you. Oh yeah, I, I absolutely look forward to it as well. I mean, you're, you're one of my absolute favorites on Twitter and... No. I, I, I love that conversation we had with uh, on Rad. I love the conversation we had on Wells. And I like you, I was looking forward to this for a while uh, because of the fact that, you know, we, we have this shared love of Hans Zimmer that, yeah. uh, you know, it's... It, he. I think, to a certain extent, I think he's... To a certain extent, I think he's almost underrated because of the fact that he doesn't have the the degree of acclaim that I think a lot of composers do, or certainly mm-hmm. like a John Williams or Jerry Goldsmith. And I think it's because of, you know, how much of his work is, does kind of uh, happen in movies that are not as good as yeah. movies that they would work on. Um, but yeah, it, it's been absolutely great to talk to you about Hans Zimmer and share that love. Yeah, I appreciate it, Brian. You're one of the greats, so thank you. <laughs> I'd like to thank Darren for uh, joining me to discuss Hans Zimmer. This is a conversation that we've uh, had in interest, been interested in having in a lot for a while. That's going to do it for this episode of the Sonic Cinema Podcast. Uh, the rest of the uh, summer is going to have a lot of really fun guests, some first-timers, some returning, and some fun discussions. Um Check out, uh, hopefully, uh, in the coming weeks or so, my soundtrack album to the score for Brian Ackley's Player PhD will be out. You'll be able to listen to that. And uh, 
you know, that'll that'll be it for this episode of the Sonic Cinema Podcast. Uh, rate and review, subscribe at YouTube, Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, check us out at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema and, of course, www.sonic-cinema.com. As I teased in the episode, I'm going to end this one without my usual fanfare uh, with a piece that I wrote in 1999 that is inspired by Hans Zimmer's music. It is called Ethereal Atmospheres, and I hope you enjoy it.